This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. Have you lived in cities most of your life? Yes. I'm definitely in a city girl. Where did, where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up here in the Bay Area in Oakland. This is architect Liz Ogbu. Both of my parents are Nigerian immigrants. So I had an experience of growing up in American cities, but then also being able to see the cities in Nigeria. When you were a kid, what was your impression of, of these big cities? Um, cities were places where they almost signified opportunity. They were places where you could come and build a career, build a family. Both of my parents came from rural villages. There is this sense that you could, you could do anything in a city. You, you could make your way and become a certain type of person in the city. And, and when you look at the Bay Area or just, you know, just San Francisco, for example, do you, I mean, do you think that's still true today? No. As we have seen, things like the tech industry center even more wealth within San Francisco. You're seeing this deep segmentation along class lines. You know, there were always poor communities in San Francisco. So, like, that much hasn't changed. I think it's just become even more extreme. A family of four that earns $114,000 is now classified as low income in San Francisco. That's ridiculous. But that's the reality that we're seeing right now. And that reality has reached nearly every corner of San Francisco. And even though gentrification comes with an influx of money for growth and development, it also means a lot of longtime residents who already feel forgotten by the city are being priced out and pushed out of their homes. When we talk about doing development in in these cities, and it's supposed to just be good that we want to redevelop it. And, you know, economic forces are what economic forces are. So if it so happens that the people who've been there before aren't able to stay, we have no control over that. It's kind of the way that the talk goes. And, you know, I, I think that's wrong. Liz Ogbu picks up this idea from the TED stage. Developer Majora Carter once said to me, poor people don't hate gentrification. They just hate that they really get to hang around long enough to enjoy its benefits. Why is it that we treat cultural erasure and economic displacement as inevitable? We could approach development with an acknowledgement of past injustices, find value not only in those new stories, but the old ones too and make a commitment to build people's capacity to stay, to stay in their homes, to stay in their communities, to stay where they feel whole. But to do this rethink, it requires looking at those past injustices and the pain and grief that is interwoven into them. Think about what it would be like to find your favorite local spot, a place where you often went and hung out with the old-timers or your friends, had vanished. And then you get home and you find that there's a letter from your landlord 
saying that your rent's been doubled. The choice to stay, it's not yours to make. You no longer belong in your home. We often rush to remake these places, but in our boundless desire to do good, to get past all of our mistakes, to build places that hold possibility, we often maintain a blissful ignorance of a landscape filled with a very long trail of broken promises and squelched dreams. We are building on top of brokenness. Is it any wonder that the foundations cannot hold? For hundreds of years, cities have been seen as symbols of hope and opportunity and innovation. But cities around the world are also at a crossroads, with more and more people flooding into them, and many others being pushed out as a result. And so the question is, how will cities confront these challenges? So today on the show, we're going to explore cities, what they represent, if there's such a thing as a humane city, and if not, how we can build one. I think that we all have a sense of responsibility and accountability in how our cities develop and particularly those of us who come in with any degree of power or privilege. And if we do not leverage that to sort of ask, how do we develop this in a way that makes sure that everyone has a chance at opportunity and that those who have been most impacted are centered in our understanding of what we need to do, then we're all just complicit in the erasure of these people and their history from these communities. For the past few years, Liz Ogbu has been working on a project in Bayview-Hunters Point. It's a low-income neighborhood in San Francisco, and she's been focused on a 30-acre plot of land there, a plot of land that used to be the site of a power plant. Back in the 90s, a community group led by mothers who lived in the public housing on the hill above the plant fought for its closure. They won. The utility company finally tore it down, cleaned the soil, and capped most of the site with asphalt so that the clean soil wouldn't blow away. Now, the utility company couldn't develop on this site for a while for reasons that had to do with land entitlements, lease agreements, etc., etc. So Liz was part of a design team that came up with creative ways to use the land. And for the last four years, we've been collaborating with those mothers and other residents, as well as local organizations and the utility company. We've been experimenting with all types of events, everything from job training workshops to an annual circus to even a beautiful new shoreline trail. A few months ago, there was a community meeting in this neighborhood. The utility company was finally ready to talk long-term redevelopment. That meeting was kind of a disaster. There was a lot of yelling and anger. People asked things like, if you're going to sell it to a developer, wouldn't they just build luxury condos like everyone else? And where has the city been? Why aren't there more jobs and resources in this neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, I can understand why people were, were angry. You know, they were probably thinking, well, wait a minute, we've lived with this power plant for generations, and now you're going to sell the land to a developer who's going to make condos that we can't afford and then push us out of our homes? Yeah, I, I think that they had been seeing that story play out again and again and again throughout the neighborhood. Anytime there was a piece of land that 
that came up, maybe there was a little set aside for affordable housing, but there wasn't nearly as much as people thought there should be. So while they see people coming in and saying, oh, okay, Bayview's no longer the ghetto, we can redevelop it, that it wasn't necessarily redeveloped with them in mind. And so their greatest fear here was that the story was about to play out again. And it stung even more because it was the site that they had fought for. Holding space for pain and grief was never part of my job description as an architect, but I've seen what happens when there's space for pain. It can be transformational. When we first started working in the neighborhood, one of the first things we did was go out and interview the activists who had led the fight to close the plant. We consistently heard and felt from them a sense of impending loss. When I was a nine-year-old little girl running around in the Bayview, it was a little different because it was more families. Back then, as a child, it was perfection. People were leaving or dying of old age, and with those departures, stories were being lost. A lot of people had open-door policy. You could just go from one building to the next. No one was going to know the amazing things that had happened in this community. Because to everyone on the outside, it was the ghetto. At worst, a place of violence. At best, a blank slate. Neither was true, of course. So my colleagues and I, we reached out to StoryCorps, and we built a listening booth on our site. At the end of the block was a sewer system. And of course, we had the smells every morning and all of that. And we invited the residents to come and have their stories recorded for posterity. But what was special about, the, about that area is that there was this patch of green grass. And we had no parks around, so either we played on the block in the street or we found this little patch. After a few days of recording, we held a listening party. My dad worked three or four jobs. He was a fisherman. He raised chickens. He had a garden. Every Saturday, I could just remember people coming to my house with bags and getting strawberries. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I was poor or living in poverty just because I grew up in Bayview. It was one of the most amazing community meetings I've ever been a part of. In part because we didn't just talk about joy, but also pain. When a crack epidemic hit, it went crazy. Places like Bayview became more crime-ridden and infested. And right now, we're just losing so many families. We cannot create cities for everyone unless we're first willing to listen to everyone. Um, and we should say that, you know, the debate over how this site will be developed, is, I think, is still ongoing, right? Yes. What happens if if nothing changes, if, um, you know, cities like San Francisco and New York aren't just anomalies, but that we start to see that in lots more places? I mean, we are, right? Yeah. And people who have lived in neighborhoods in those cities that were relatively affordable can't do it anymore. Um, What happens if nothing changes? Gosh, that's a hard question. I mean, what we're seeing happening right now, it's unsustainable. And, And when I say unsustainable, I don't mean that it couldn't continue to happen. But I think the things that we ascribe to being beneficial for living in a society or in community, the aspirations we have of what that looks like, eventually all of this pushes it to a point where that breaks. I mean, I mean, part of the system that's driving this is, you know, developers who buy the land and then build the condos and then expect a certain return, like from every 
every unit, every condo sold, right? Yeah. But could you test out something that works in a different way? Yeah. I mean, like, could American cities take, you know, big chunks of land and do something very different with that land? It's a it's a huge bit of risk, and it would require you setting up um, other metrics of success, right? Like happiness or well-being or, or health outcomes or... Yes. I think it's completely reframing how we think about this. Like, we shouldn't be talking about housing. We should be talking about homes. Yeah. Because when we talk about housing, we judge our success in the number of units created, and shouldn't we be judging it in terms of number of better lives lived? It, it, it's harder to figure out how to measure that. But I don't know if this grand project that we call the city ultimately can work if we don't start to measure our success in those terms. That's architect Liz Ogbu. You can check out her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, Building Humane Cities. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Smartwater. Smartwater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, Smartwater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Thanks also to American Express. Lots of people have great ideas, but turning ideas into reality is tricky. Far fewer people do that, and it's even harder for them to do it alone. Whether those people need big strategic thinking or day-to-day business help, American Express believes support is part of the magic formula. After all, there's no I in we. No matter what your idea, big or small, you don't have to go it alone because American Express has your back. Don't live life without it. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I can cry. I just talked to John Batiste, music director and band leader on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He did the interview at the piano. I can slide. You can find it now in the Fresh Air feed. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about building more humane cities. Cities that make space for everyone, especially the most vulnerable. Were you um, were you born in Lagos? Yeah, I actually was, yes. And I've spent most of my life so here. So Lagos is your home. Lagos is your home since you we became <laughs> human in the world. Yes, yes, this is accurate. This is Olutimeyan Adigbeye. She's a writer in Lagos, Nigeria. But the kind of stuff I write is generally about rights-based issues, human rights. So I focus on the rights of the urban poor, can you describe what Lagos is like? Like, what, what would I see if I went there? Hmm. So I guess it depends on which Lagos you live in, right? And I think that maybe this is universal, where the where cities are concerned. Like, you can be in the same physical space, but because of your identity or your social location, you experience it completely differently. So, for instance, the Lagos that I experience is different from the Lagos that my daughter's nanny experiences. So you're driving down, say, Third Mainland Bridge, and you look to your right or your left, as the case may be, and you can see some of the fishing settlements that have 
now been termed slums along the side of the bridge. You can see the landfilling that's being done on the other side where they're reclaiming the lagoon in order to build some sort of middle-class entertainment slash parking garage thing. And if you're going from the mainland to the island, then the landscape of the city changes. The houses are bigger, clearly more expensive, the cars are nicer, right? There are traffic lights that work, you know? I think regardless of which Lagos you experience, you do see the starkness of the differences along those class lines. And that inequality, it only deepened over the past 40 or 50 years in Lagos, thanks in part to an explosion in population growth and a changing economy. Class has become much more cemented. Um, Class mobility is not as clear-cut or as possible as it used to be in my grandfather's generation. It was... It was easy to send one or two children to school and have them access jobs and then have them send their siblings or their cousins to school and slowly sort of lift the whole family out of poverty in one or two generations, right? And that's no longer possible. Ola and Adigbeye picks up this idea from the TED stage. There is so much that is possible in Lagos and so much that isn't. And very often, the difference between possibility and impossibility is simply who you are. Belonging in Lagos is a fluid concept determined by ethnic origin, sexual orientation, gender, but most visibly, and often most violently, class. Before Nigeria became a country, fisher people from the inland creeks started to come down the Lagos Lagoon and establish villages along the coast. About 60 years later, my grandfather, Oludoto Adekunle Kukoi, also arrived in Lagos. Over time, he built an illustrious career as a land surveyor, mapping out now-bustling neighborhoods when they were just waist-high wild grass. He died when I was nine, and by that time, my family, like the families of those fisher people, knew Lagos as home. Among the Yoruba, we have a saying, Ekogboli, Ogbole which can be translated to mean that Lagos will welcome anyone. But that saying is becoming less and less true. Many Lagosians, including the descendants of those fisher people who arrived generations before my grandfather, are now being pushed out to make room for an emergent city that has been described as the new Dubai. You see, Lagos inspires big dreams, even in its leaders. And successive governments have declared aspirations towards a megacity where poverty does not exist. Unfortunately, instead of focusing on the eradication of poverty, as you would expect, the strategy of choice focuses on eliminating the poor. Last October, the governor announced plans to demolish every single waterfront settlement in Lagos. There are more than 40 of these indigenous communities all over the city, with over 300,000 people living in them. Otodogbame, a hundred-year-old fishing village with a population about three-quarters that of Monaco and similar potential for beachfront luxury, was one of the first to be targeted. It's almost like, and this, I mean, and this happens all around the world, it's, it's almost like um, cities want to hide people who are poor, people who live in... Mm-hmm. in places that, that are characterized as slums. Like, they want to yeah. hide those places from the gaze of the world. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, to attract foreign investment, you know, you, you have to look like where the foreign investment is coming from. So you erase anything that doesn't look like that, even though nothing looks like that. I mean, by definition, the whole of Lagos is a slum, right? Let's be honest. If we take the technical definition of lack of sanitation services, lack of infrastructure, the whole city is a slum. But um, more and more, you'll hear agencies or government officials talk about ultra-modern projects and what they really mean is stuff that's like steel and concrete and glass and mirrors and, you know, Mm. look like the New York skyline type aesthetic. So you can use this sort of rhetoric to push out poor populations, or at least this is what they hope will happen. But the truth is, like, in the end, poor people don't just disappear, right? So if you push them further and further away from wherever it is that you want to make into a shiny suburb or, you know, locale, where do you think they're going to go? The conditions that cause us to define certain neighborhoods as slums can be effectively improved, but not without recognizing the humanity and the agency of the people living in them. In Lagos, where public goods are rarely publicly available, slum dwellers are often at the forefront of innovating solutions. After being disconnected from the grid for months because the power company couldn't figure out how to collect bills, one settlement designed a system that collectivized remittances and got everyone cheaper rates into the bargain. Another settlement created a reform program that hires local bad boys as security. They know every trick and every hideout, so now troublemakers are more likely to get caught and reported to police, and fewer of the youth end up engaging in criminal activity. Slums are an imperfect housing solution, but they are also prime examples of the innovation, adaptability, and resilience at the foundation and the heart of every functional city. We have our own identity, our own rhythm, And as anyone who knows Lagos can tell you, poor Lagosians are very often the source of the city's character. Without its poor, Lagos would not be known for its music or its endless energy or even the fact that you can buy an ice-cold drink or a puppy through your car window. (laughs) So you spent uh, time in some of these neighborhoods that that I guess are defined as slums. And I mean, what what did you experience? What, What were they like for you? I mean, I remember the the first time I went into one slum that's literally built on like an island of garbage. Hmm. That's sort of, it's packed really tightly and then it's layered with sawdust and then layered with sort of some sort of carpeting or sand or something. But then if you go into the place and you see the people who live here and they have all kinds of entrepreneurial initiatives, they're making marginal profits on a daily basis, but enough to pay their rent, to send their kids to school, to scale up their businesses where that's possible, and to save. And you realize from interacting with the people in particular that there's not that much that's so significantly different about Mm. them. And there are people who have the economic wherewithal to live elsewhere who just don't want to because there's a quality of life that comes from living in such close proximity to your friends and your family and your colleagues and your church members or your the people you go to mosque with. There's a sense of community mm. that is so rich that is almost impossible to get in more formal neighborhoods in Lagos, right? When those fisher people started to sail down the lagoon in search of new homes, 
It could not have occurred to them that the city that would rise up around them would one day insist that they do not belong in it. I like to believe that my grandfather, in mapping new frontiers for Lagos, was trying to open it up to make room for other people to be welcomed by the city in the same way that he was. On my way here, my grandma called me <laughs> to remind me how proud she was, how proud he and my mother would have been. I am their dreams come true. But there is no reason why their dreams, or mine for that matter, are allowed to come true while those of others are turned to nightmares. And lest we forget, the minimum requirement for a dream is a safe place to lay your head. We must hold our governments and ourselves accountable for keeping our shared cities safe for everyone in them. Because the only cities worth building, indeed, the only futures worth dreaming of, are those that include all of us, no matter who we are or how we make homes for ourselves. Thank you. Olutmeyen Adigbeye, she's a writer in Lagos. You can see her full talk at TED.com. So Vishan, please uh, introduce yourself. Okay. Uh, my name is Vishan Chakrabarty. I'm an architect and author, and I'm also a professor at Columbia University. Vishan was born in Kolkata, India, but as a kid, he moved to Massachusetts, where he often felt like an outsider. I grew up in a suburb outside of Boston, kind of hated every minute of it. Um, it was a very sort of racist, violent upbringing. And for immigrants especially, I'm a first-generation immigrant, you speak differently than other people, you look different than other people there. And so you, there's this tendency to feel a little homeless or lost. When Vasham became an adult, he ended up relocating to New York City. And for the first time in his life, he didn't really feel different. You know, what I immediately encountered when I came to New York was this feeling like I had kind of discovered a long-lost twin brother. No one really questioned whether you belonged here. You belonged automatically by virtue of being here. And I think one of the great things that a truly great city does is provide this sense that you belong by virtue of who you are, not, you know, what your background is. And that got Vishan thinking about what it was that made the city so welcoming. And after becoming an architect, he noticed that a city's vibrancy and inclusivity has a lot to do with how it's designed. If you think about architecture as an act of writing in the city, you have to read the city first. And all of the basic components are human components. They need to invite diversity across race, gender, sexual orientation, and especially class and socioeconomic structure. And he says the key difference between a welcoming city and a less welcoming one is scale. Because so many of our modern cities were designed around big, anonymous buildings with streets that aren't walkable and almost no places for people to just gather. But Vishan says older cities around the world were built on a much more human scale. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but I think pre-20th century cities all around the world tend to be much more dynamic, lyrical places. So Venice, let's just take Venice. 
you look at those arch pedestrian bridges, you're going over a canal. The clearance is actually quite low, so the person who's operating the gondola is standing, and they know they have to duck to get under the bridge. So they don't call a lawyer when their forehead hits the bridge because they've made a mistake. They know it's their responsibility to duck. And so I think to get to a more humane city that entails maybe more risk but more reward. You know, you can go to Israel, to India, to Rome, and you'll find um, there's a building block for building density in the 19th century, which was one elevator, this kind of this charming cable elevator, right, that has light coming through it. And then there's one staircase that wraps around it. And usually that apartment building had like 20 units. And you see that each building is maybe 50 feet long, 60 feet long. Mm -hmm. And so you get this tremendous variation. One is brick, one is stone, doorways are different. And so you have this kind of rhythm along the street. You run into your neighbor, everyone knows each other, it's very communal. That form of building isn't legal today Hmm. because of fire codes and wheelchair regulations and a whole bunch of things. So now you need, you know, a few elevators and you need two sets of fire stairs and that's all connected by a long anonymous hallway. And suddenly a developer is really incentivized to build a 200 unit building instead of a 20 unit building in order to sort of amortize all of that cost. And as a consequence, it's very hard to know your neighbors in a 200-unit building. And so the scale at which we build is different and uh, more mass-produced. And so you see the same building landing in Shanghai and Mumbai and Dubai. And so I, I don't think one has to be an architect or an urban planner to understand these issues. I think people are feeling this viscerally. I hear this everywhere I go from everyday people who aren't trained in this at all, but feel this kind of creeping homogenization of their world. Vishan Chakrabarti picks up his idea from the TED stage. Now, maybe you think I'm just being nostalgic. Why does it matter? Who cares if there is this creeping sameness besetting our planet? Well, it matters because most people around the world are gravitating to urban areas globally. And how we design those urban areas could well determine whether we thrive or not as a species. And this is not just an aesthetic issue, mind you. This is an issue of international consequence. Because today, every day, literally hundreds of thousands of people are moving into a city somewhere. And when you think about that, ask yourself, Are they condemned to live in the same bland cities we built in the 20th century? Or can we offer them something better? It seems to me that one of the things that makes many cities, especially cities in wealthy countries, somewhat inhumane is their inaccessibility to so many people. It's it's like, you know, the city has become this inhumane place because it keeps people away because it is so expensive to live in the city, like like New York City yeah. or San Francisco or, or Boston or London or Paris. Yes. And in fact, one of the things I worry about with the U.S. is, you know, there's a lot to compliment about European cities. But one of the things we need to be really careful of is most European cities have almost all of their poor people living on the outskirts, on the periphery. Yeah. Uh, and only really the well-to-do live in the heart of these beautiful cities that we talk about. And the problem often is market rate housing doesn't feel like it's helping to address the problem no. because you know it's out of reach. Now, there are 
ways in which government subsidizes affordable housing. But as an architect, one of the things we're looking at is how do you lower the cost of housing so that construction costs can come down and that allows people to charge less rent uh, than they otherwise would. And this is where mass transit infrastructure and infrastructure more generally is so important because we don't have to think about the city as just the city limits. There's a region around every major city. And if we have better mass transportation to get people to work from 20 or 30 or 40 miles outside of the city, then they can live a transit-oriented lifestyle without living in the heart of the city. And a lot of people will choose that if we give them good transit options. And we're actually seeing those transformations happening all over the world in big ways and in small ways. In just a moment... Vishan imagines how technology could help us redesign cities and allow us to bring the humanity of older cities into the 21st century. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners to this program can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com hour. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. How much would you pay to avoid morning traffic? Why are plane tickets to Boise so expensive? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of The Indicator. In every episode, we take on a new unexpected idea to help you make sense of the day's news. Listen every afternoon on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about cities and how we can build more humane ones. And just before the break, we were hearing from architect Vishan Chakrabarty. And Vishan says design could be part of the solution. But it largely depends on how we use technology. Technology was a big part of the problem in the 20th century. When we invented the automobile, what happened is the world all bent towards the invention. And we recreated our landscape around it. In the 21st century, technology can be part of the solution if it bends to the needs of the world. And so what do I mean by that? Take the autonomous vehicle. I don't think the autonomous vehicle is exciting because it's a driverless car. I think what's exciting about the autonomous vehicle is the promise that we could have these small urban vehicles that could safely co-mingle with pedestrians and bicycles. That would enable us to design humane streets again, streets without curbs, maybe streets like the wooden walkways on Fire Island. Or maybe we could design streets with the cobblestone of the 21st century, something that captures kinetic energy, melts snow, helps you with your fitness when you walk. Or remember those big ladder fire trucks? 
What if we could replace them and all the asphalt that comes with them with drones and robots that could rescue people from burning buildings? And if you think that's outlandish, you'd be amazed to know how much of that technology is already being used today in rescue activity. But now I'd like you to really imagine with me. Imagine if we could design the hovercraft wheelchair, right? An invention that would not only allow equal access, but would enable us to build the Italian hill town of the 21st century. I think you'd be amazed to know that if just a few of these inventions, responsive to human need, would completely transform the way we could build our cities. I mean, the thing is, right? Let's say we do transform cities into into these more humane places, like with the help of technology or or whatever. I mean, there will still be some level of inhumanity in them, right? I mean, right. it's not. Is it possible to have no social discord at all? You know. Part of why I gave the talk I gave at TED was being cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of technologists in the room. And technologists can be wonderful people, but they can also be a bit ahistorical. Mm. And what I was hoping to convey to a room full of technologists is we need them to invent stuff that helps us build more humane cities, right? Firefighting drones and the, and the you know, different kind of a wheelchair and so forth. So we can look at all those codes and standards that we have to build with and change them so we can maybe have a kind of back to the future moment and think about what was great about cities before the 20th century that could maybe inhabit our cities in the 21st and 22nd century because technologies allowed us to change those standards. Um, but that's not the goal. The goal is those standards are changing so we can design this infrastructure so we create some more social friction. Cities at their best are engines of social friction. So if you look at the Arab Spring and you saw what was happening in Tahrir Square, when you saw what was happening in Tunisia, it's because cities tend to be the platform for social change in nations. And social friction requires a kind of, in my book I call it an infrastructure of opportunity, this idea that you're building public spaces, subway systems, the farmer's market, places where people who are from different walks of life meet eyeball to eyeball. Because mm. social friction is fundamentally what advances civilization, and I think that's really the heart of it. Architect Vishan Chakrabarty, he's a professor at Columbia, and his latest book is called A Country of Cities, a Manifesto for an Urban America. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, building humane cities. Ideas about many of the challenges that cities now face. When you're mayor for eight years, you get a chance to meet people from all over. This is Richard Berry. He was the mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico from 2009 to 2017. And you'll meet people at the grocery store, you'll meet people on the street, you start having conversations, you'll do deep dives in your community, and you, you start becoming keenly aware that as much as you think you understand, you just haven't walked a mile in those shoes. During Richard's time as mayor, Albuquerque saw a spike in its homeless population and lots more people panhandling in the streets. And so Richard wanted to come up with a more humane approach for how to deal with it. So I saw a gentleman on uh, July 15th, 2015, I believe was the day. I was on my way back to City Hall from a lunch meeting, and he was holding a sign that said he wants a job. And 
listen, I'm a B student and I'm not a genius, but I went back to my staff and I said, listen, I saw a gentleman holding a sign that said he wants a job. Why don't we do something different? Why don't we make government less complicated rather than more complicated? Why don't we take this man at his word? And I grew up in, in, in Nebraska around a rural environment. I knew there was dignity in work. I saw people, including my grandparents and my parents, work hard. And there's just something about having a reason to get up in the morning and accomplish something that's been ingrained in me since I was a child. And so we just wanted to take that and present an opportunity. This is a story about what happened in my city when we decided to think differently about panhandling and lift people up through the dignity of work. Here's more from Richard Berry on the TED stage. We call it There's a Better Way because I believe there's a better way to get the money you need than panhandling on the corner. I believe there's a better way to help your brothers and sisters in need than handing a few dollars out the car window. We know there's dignity in work. We also know that people are much more likely to invest in themselves if they believe that their community is willing to invest in them first. And because we're all wired to be kind and compassionate, it always feels good to hand a couple of dollars to someone that is in need. But if you talk to panhandlers, many of them will tell you that your few dollars don't necessarily go towards feeding the body, they go towards feeding an addiction. You see, Albuquerque is a beautiful place. We're a mile high, the Sandia Mountains on the east, the Rio Grande runs through the center of our city, but there's always something to do, always weeds to pull, litter to pick up. So if you're gonna have an initiative like this in your city, you have to ask yourself two questions. First one is, is there anything left to do in your city? Then if the answer is no, would you please give me your mayor's phone number because I need some advice. But the second question you have to ask is this, are your solutions to panhandling working? If you're taking the punitive approach, I'm gonna suggest that your solutions aren't working. And I know you're not getting to the root of the problem in your city. So if you have something to do, you need people that need something to do, the good news is it's not that complicated. So, so what'd you do? We took an old van from our motor pool, uh, an old Dodge van, put some tires on it, uh, made sure the brakes worked. And uh, then we reached out to St. Martin's Hope Works in Albuquerque, and we asked for their help. They're a nonprofit that works with the homeless, and uh, they do a lot of great things from feeding programs to housing programs to employment programs. We took uh, $50,000. We created a pilot program, and we hired them to be the facilitators to do the paperwork, to pay the individuals that worked for the day, to do all of the functional things that needed to be done to run the program. But more importantly, we had this notion that if you lift somebody up for the day, they are naturally going to feel better about themselves, about their circumstances. Somebody believed in them today, and they may have an opportunity and may be inclined to try to reach out for some of the services that maybe they hadn't reached out for before. So we wanted to make those available. Mm. And of the 7,000 jobs that have been created, day jobs, uh, through the Better Way program, We've been able to impact uh, almost uh, 16 or 1,700 people, and of those, 365 of them have actually reached out for mental health services, substance abuse services, the things that they need to do to make improvements in their lives. And so it's just a different way of looking at the situation rather than handing $5 out your window, which, frankly, I'm convinced isn't the way to help anybody off the corner. It doesn't take much. We started with an old van. 
a great local nonprofit in $50,000. But we also had to have community trust. And fortunately, we had built that up in years prior to a better way. We have a program called Albuquerque Heading Home, a housing first model where we house the chronically homeless. And when I told my community we wanted to do that differently, I said, there's a smart way to do the right thing. We have now housed 650 chronically homeless, medically vulnerable, frankly, most likely to die on the streets in our city. Combined with Albuquerque Heading Home, the Better Way program, Albuquerque has reduced unsheltered homelessness in our city by 80%. We've been able to reduce the chronic homeless population in our city by 40%. So, I mean, everything you're saying to me, you know, makes perfect sense. I love this. But to a lot of people, this would still be controversial, right? People might not want the government to be so involved. I mean, and you've probably heard this before. Well, we put a call out to our community for donations, and we've received over $60,000 in donations from the community to help pay for this day work. And so it's it's not just government. Right, yeah. You know, and if you've been in public office for any time and, and you're not convinced already that government can't do everything, um, you're probably not paying attention. And if we just look at this thing through a collective impact lens, we can make a bigger difference in more people's lives and we can do as a community and be proud of that. Yeah, and I mean, despite the fact that clearly this has had some impact in Albuquerque, I mean, people shouldn't expect that all of a sudden this is going to eradicate the the homelessness problem or, or stop panhandling entirely, right? Well, we shouldn't be afraid to try hard things either from a policy standpoint or from a community standpoint, just because it looks daunting. If you stick with it, you can actually make a difference. And we were able to do that. But then as you find out as a mayor, you get up the next day and there's another issue, there's another challenge, something changes, the economy goes up, the economy goes down. And so you, you can't rely on one thing and you just, you can't stand idly by. You have to continually try to look for best practices. Yeah. And so it goes. When you're mayor of a, of a major American city or if you're mayor of even a smaller community, you see people on their worst day. You see things happen that keep you up at night. And most of the time you see people thriving. You see people helping each other. But you never lose this sense that there's just a long way to go everywhere. That's what being humane and being compassionate is about. So you just try to build a mix of opportunities for people so that they can lift each other up because... Government can't just do it all. It has to be neighbor lifting up neighbor. Richard Berry, he's the former mayor of Albuquerque. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, building humane cities. And like Richard Berry just said, part of making a city more humane comes down to neighbors helping neighbors. And writer Drew Philp experienced this when he bought a house in Detroit. Here's Drew Philp on the TED stage. In 2009, I bought a house in a neighborhood called Pole Town. It had no windows, no plumbing, no electricity, and it was filled with trash. This, of course, is the Detroit that you hear about. Make no mistake, it's real. But there's another Detroit, too, another Detroit that's more hopeful more innovative, and may just provide some of the answers to cities struggling to reinvent themselves everywhere. These answers, however, do not necessarily adhere to conventional wisdom about good development. I think Detroit's real strength boils down to two words, radical neighborliness. 
and I wasn't able to see it myself until I lived there. During the year I worked on my house before moving in, I lived in a micro-community inside Poletown, founded by a wild and virtuous farmer named Paul Wirtz. Paul was a teacher in a Detroit public school for pregnant and parenting mothers, and his idea was to teach the young women to raise their children by first raising plants and animals. Paul brought much of this innovation to his block in Poletown, which he'd stewarded for more than 30 years, purchasing houses when they were abandoned, convincing his friends to move in and neighbors to stay, and helping those who wanted to buy their own fix them up. In a neighborhood where many blocks now only hold one or two houses, all the homes on Paul's block stand. It's an incredible testament to the power of community, to staying in one place, and to taking ownership of one's own surroundings, of simply doing it yourself. Radical neighborliness is every house behind Paul's block burning down, and instead of letting it fill up with trash and despair, Paul and the surrounding community creating a giant circular garden ringed with dozens of fruit trees, beehives, and garden plots for anyone that wants one. It's where residents are experimenting with renewable energy and urban farming and offering their skills and discoveries to others. It's where, for months, one of my neighbors left her front door unlocked in one of the most violent and dangerous cities in America so I could have a shower whenever I needed to go to work as I didn't yet have one. Radical neighborliness is a zygote that grows into a worldview that ends up in homes and communities rebuilt in ways that respect humanity and the environment. It's realizing we have the power to create the world anew, together, and to do it ourselves when our governments refuse. This is the Detroit that you don't hear much about. The Detroit between the ruined porn on one hand and the hipster coffee shops and billionaires saving the city on the other. There's a third way to rebuild, and it declines to make the same mistakes of the past. While building my house, I found something I didn't know I was looking for. Radical neighborliness is just another word for true community, the kind bound by memory and history, mutual trust and familiarity, built over years and irreplaceable. For me, it means helping others to raise the beams on their own formerly abandoned houses, or helping to educate those with privilege, now increasingly moving into cities, how we might come in and support rather than stress existing communities. It's chipping in when a small group of neighbors decides to buy back a foreclosed home and return the deeds to the occupants. And for you, for all of us, it means finding a role to play in our own communities. It means trusting those who know the problems best, the people who live them, with solutions. What I've learned over the last decade building my house is that true change, real change, starts first with community, with a radical sense of what it means to be a neighbor turned at least one abandoned house into a home. Thank you. That's writer Drew Philp. He wrote a book about his experience. It's called A $500 House in Detroit, Rebuilding an Abandoned Home in an American City. You can find his full talk at TED.com. The new moon rode high in the crown of the metropolis Shining like who on top of this? People was tussling, arguing and bustling Gangsters of God thumb, hardcore hustling I'm wrestling with words and ideas My ears is pricked, seeking what will transmit Hey, thanks for listening to our episode, Building Humane Cities, this week. If you want to find out more about who's on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. 
Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Diba Motasham. With help from Daniel Shukin and Megan Shellon. Our intern is Derek Gales. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.